1: From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Tom Howard and this is the Autosport Podcast. It's Thursday 12th of August and on today's podcast we're taking a closer look at a trio of features in this week's edition of the magazine. It's a bumper issue featuring a plethora of categories and as our cover suggests it includes a 52 page guide to this year's Le Mans 24 Hours, the highlight of the sports car racing year. However, in today's podcast we are going to be focusing on stories from Formula One, the British Touring Car Championship and the World Rally Championship. Autosport editor Kevin Turner has put together a cracking piece on British F1 team BRM and its last hurrah when Tony Southgate crafted the famous P153 and P160 cars that brought the team back to the sharp end of the grid in 1970 and 1971. Deputy Editor Marcus Simmons has spoken to BTCC title contender and the fast-becoming historic racing master Jake Hill on his passion for all things motorsport and his journey to the front of the BTCC grid. And finally, I've been taking a look at the new hybrid Ford Puma weapon M-Sport and Ford have created to return the Blue Oval back to the forefront of the WRC next year. There is a lot to discuss, but we will start with BRM. So, Kevin, what drew you to the story surrounding the revival of this sleeping F1 giant?
0: Yeah, well, I've been doing quite a lot of research recently on Pedro Rodriguez, as you remember, Tom. We've done we've done the piece and podcast on that, and Joe it as well. And, of course, they were both BRM drivers in 1971. As part of doing that, I spoke to Tony Southgate, who, uh, as we'll get to, is, is one of the key reasons why BRM had a competitive run for 1970 and 71 and as I was chatting to him he's, he's a great person to, to interview he's in his 80s now but his memory very sharp and um, yeah, he's, he's good fun to speak to um, the kind of an idea formed and then I happened to be speaking to Jackie Oliver for another piece and obviously he drove for BRM in 1970 and Jackie's got some quite when he's in when he's in the right mood he's got some brilliant one-liners that are quite dismissive or very praiseworthy of particular individuals and some of the stuff that he said about the shambles that BRM was in nineteen sixty nine before uh, I think he I think he described the sixty nine car as a tractor, uh, but that Tony Southgate built a modern racing car and sort of I went from there really. So um yeah, it was it was one of those things where you just it sounded interesting. I've always quite liked those BRMs. I thought they looked quite cool. As you know, I'm a bit of a fan of Rodriguez and Siffert. so just I thought, why not? I'm just gonna just gonna write it.
1: It's actually a really interesting story. Like, I guess there's a there's quite a, a generation that won't know an awful lot about BRM, so it's a good chance to sort of relive it. But they're actually a lot more successful, than I guess, people would think.
0: Well, yeah, it'd be interesting to know what um, some of the some of the listeners might might think of BRM. Um, because I was, a, a, you know, a, a sad child. I used to read old all-sports, so I'm very familiar with BRM, even though it was done and dusted as an F1 team before I was born. Um, but obviously in the 60s they were one of the big teams. They won the 1962 World Championship with Graham Hill, the constructors and the drivers titles. Um and even after that, they were you know, really front real front runners. The P261 um you know won won a few Grand Prix um through 64 to 66. Jackie Stewart had his first year in that car, won won his first Grand Prix and you know, took his first win in a, uh in, in that car, and won the Tasman Cup. So BRM were a real front running operation in sort of the early and mid sixties and then when the 3-litre regulations came on, they went on a magical mystery tour of an H16 BRM engine. Despite the fact that the V16 hadn't worked at all in the early 1950s form. they thought, well, you know what we want, we need another really complex, overly difficult engine that we could not do properly. Uh, and so they were still really hadn't recovered from that. Um, they had moved on to a V12, which was at least a bit better. Uh, in fact, Tony Southgate was quite pr- you know, praised that more than I expected. Um even even though he said it was a bit of a grenade in terms of blowing up, it was actually quite a decent compact engine for a V twelve at the time. And um but they were yeah, well they was very stuck in their ways, they were very slow to pick up on new developments. It took them ages to try and experiment with wings, given that, you know, Colin Chapman and and various you know, people in America and Europe had started to pick up on that in nineteen sixty eight. Um and apparently it was John Surtees who basically said, you know, you need to sort this out. But he did it in such a way that upset everyone and he ended up leaving the team. But he had kick-started the process and he was the one that approached Southgate. Tim Parnell took over as team manager and um, yeah, they got Rodriguez back on board for 1970 and um, with the P153. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it kind of brought them back into front-running just for a couple of years. It made BRM a front-runner again.
1: I guess it's also a bit of a what-might-have-been story because it's quite a tragic uh, sort of ending to what happened there with obviously Pedro uh, was killed in an accident at Norris Ring and then Joseph obviously died not f- shortly after that. What what could they have actually done, do you think, if those two drivers had, had finished the season?
0: Well, um, yeah, I mean, there's two parts to that. Actually, 1970, the car was competitive but blew up every five minutes. Um, it held together to win the Belgian Grand Prix, which was their first win for four years. But pretty much all the other... I did obviously look, look at all the races during that period. In 1970, it was appalling unreliability. They began to get it t- together towards the end of the year. Uh, Southgate worked out they needed to get a lot of oil through the V12. He tidied up the design. And I don't know how we we'll would perhaps bring Marcus in on this in a minute, but I, I thought the P160 in 1971 is a really nice-looking F1 car. Um thought it was a fantastic piece of kit. And that, that was... That that was a front-runner. I think if Pedro had... I mean, let's face it, they did finish second in the Constructors' Championship in 71, and Sifat did get to the end of the year because he was killed in a non-championship victory race at the end of the season. Um, I think they probably would have won maybe a couple of other races if Pedro had hung around, because I think he was quicker than than Siffert at that point. But I don't think they were ever going to beat Jackie Stewart and Tyrrell you know, in the Championship, but they probably would have been... You know, they only jumped Ferrari at the very last race, so they might have been a bit further ahead if... If, uh, if Pedro had had um, you know, been around to complete the year.
1: Marcus, what are your thoughts on the, on the BRMs then? Uh, you, Kev's obviously talking them up. Uh, Were they as attractive uh, as Kev says? Just to pick up on
2: something Kev was saying about the reliability and the engines being a grenade. It was quite funny when I, I was doing the, the final read through the, uh, the feature before it went to, went to press and Kev's done a, a chart with all the uh, the results uh, from each Grand Prix over those two years in 1970 and 71, and um, pretty much there's a run of about ten consecutive races where it says Jackie Oliver retired brackets engine, <laughs> and <laughs> and I was thinking, I I think he might have just uh, done a cut and paste job all the way down here, but Kev doesn't make mistakes like that, and sure enough, it was retired engine uh, in all of them. So, um, no, I i'm i'm a little bit older than um than than you two and i do um my first memories of formula one are very very hazy from seeing a couple of clips on tv in 1973 uh where it was the p160 uh, was still um going on for what was its third year at that time wasn't it and um with quite an exciting driver lineup actually with Nicky Lauda, Claire Regazzoni and Jean-Pierre Beltoise. The Marlborough liveried cars as well. So just uh, yeah, as, a, as a kid it just stood out to me um, and Lauda was obviously an exciting driver. And by the time I actually saw Formula 1 for real um, actually being at a track it was the 74 international trophy and the those Marlborough liveried P160s had become uh, green and silver motel liveried P201s my, my memories of them as a kid were as a as a team that was respectable but as a kid I didn't know the background and um yeah the, the Graham Hill side of things or anything like that and you know over the over the following few years they just became a bit of a laughing stock and um, yeah I can remember in 77 um went to two Grand Prix with my um with my Parents, the the British and the Dutch Grand Prix, and uh, they didn't get through pre qualifying in either of them. So, so for for me, uh, it, it, BRM was just their, their peak was a little bit before my memories as a as a kid. Uh, if I was if I was sixty four rather than fifty four, um, I'd probably have um, a very different view on them. But uh, uh, I mean, the the P one hundred and sixty was a was a good looking car. They all were at that time. Um, in in my uh, in, in my mind, when I when I look at yeah, when you look at um, pictures from from the era, um, the engines sounded nice. I remember because uh, it was still the V twelve um, up until the, the the last knockings of the team. The, the engines point is that that
0: amused me as well, uh, Marcus, in the piece. As, um Tony said to me that he reckoned there were twelve V twelve engines that he he thought the team had while he was there, and he thought that by the end by the time he left, and he left early on in 1972 or midway through 72, that there was probably only one engine that didn't have a hole in the block and needed repairing. (laughs) Because they didn't build a new one, they just patched up the old ones. Um, And obviously that didn't help with with reliability going forward. So, um, uh, yeah, he had a few interesting things to say about um, Louis Stanley, who he thought was um, trying to be a a British Enzo Ferrari, but without perhaps certain key attributes that Enzo had, (laughs) which uh, has helped us to explain BRM's decline during the 1970s.
2: Which driver was it who fell out with Louis Stanley because he said the car would have been quite good if it had a Cosworth in it? <laughs> oh, I'm not sure who
0: that would have been. I mean, I, I can't imagine Pedro or Joe saying that, but I can imagine Jackie Oliver saying that. That's the sort of thing I can imagine him saying. But actually, um, uh, Southgate was more. I uh, say, apart from the reliability and working out, they needed to get more oil flow through it. He actually said that the V12 wasn't bad. He said in seventy seventy one, it was probably on a par with the Dfv in terms of power. Um, he used it as a, he couldn't use it as a stressed member like you could with the Dfv, but it was semi-stressed, and he said, you know, it kind of fitted in nicely. It wasn't really a big problem. Um, so he felt in nineteen seventy one, it was just the right level of power, reliability, working in the car that you know they could they could take on pretty much anyone, um, you know, except except Jackie Stewart in a Tyrrell, really. Um, but I think you're probably bringing in a slight driver factor there as well.
1: You did also mention there, sort of in the decline of BRM, they sort of went on a bit of a splurge to try and get as many cars out as possible. And that seems to really have hampered them. What do you think they could have done if I would just
0: focused on maybe two or three entries? Well, uh, well Tony was quite funny about that as well, because he said that him and, and Tim Parnell and basically anyone else in the team um, told Stanley that they didn't want to run five cars Um and they were pay drivers, um, but some of them were quite good. I mean, Helmut Marko was was pretty quick. Obviously, um, you know, Nicky Lauda came in later as a, as a pay driver. So, pay driver doesn't necessarily mean terrible, but also, obviously, it does spread your resources rather rather than, but he did say that there was one race, I think it must have been the 72, where he persuaded them to run three cars instead of five, and he said all three of them broke down anyway, which then made them look like a bunch of numpties because they couldn't get the three cars running properly. Um, but he, yeah, he did say there was one race where Howden Ganley came in and he said, oh, I, I'm sorry, Howden, I've completely forgotten what we've done to the car, what are we are trying? Because he'd been, he'd been having the other, the other four cars coming in and out of the pits and he'd completely lost track. Of what he'd done to each car, and he said, in the end, he had to have a dictaphone with him it wasn't he yeah, didn't have time for pad and pen. he'd literally just say, "You know, ganley, stiffer on the rear springs, next car in and then he'd play it back to himself to try and remind himself what was so yeah chaotic really um they had fun. and he said at monaco nineteen seventy two they actually ran three different models of b r m because they were they ran the p one five three for the really rubbish pay drivers, and then if you're any good in that. You got a p160 um, so that's what happened with marco because they thought he was quite comp- quite good uh and then he he tried to design when he realized the v12 wasn't going to get updated for 72 um southgate tried to, to go a bit radical with the p180 which he said was a you know he, he went too radical with it and it was a bit of a disaster but yeah a monaco in 72 they were trying to run three different models for five different drivers which I mean, the mind boggles really. Given that the team would have probably have only been you know ten or twelve people actually working on the cars anyway.
1: I think a modern F1 team would struggle with that today.
0: Like if they're yes, trying
1: right, to run yeah. three different models.
0: But... I mean, if if some of the pit stops we see during sort of wet, dry, dry, wet races or anything to go by, can you imagine <laughs> the chaos, the scenes? As which ones? And of course, you've all got allotted tyres now, haven't you? Is that <laughs> yeah. Bottas's tyres or George Russell's tyres? Oh, I don't know. There's another three cars coming in in a minute.
1: Uh, another interesting point that I liked about the features is obviously that John is has, has sort of instigated this revival, but he's not there to, to sort of reap the rewards. What do you think was going through his mind when he saw, you know, those cars having success?
0: Well, he was by then he was very much focused on his own, you know, Surtees operation, you know, his own team, which actually wasn't, yeah you know, wasn't bad. They never quite won a World Championship Grand Prix, but he did win non-championship races, and yeah, you know, they did run towards the front on occasion. So at that point, um, oh, I can't imagine John Surtees as the sort of person that would have been too worried about that. He'd have moved on from what you know, one thing to the one thing to the next. I mean, yeah, you know, he got used to walking out of Ferrari in 1966, which almost certainly would have won him a World Championship. So I just think leaving BRM at that point was small fry by comparison. Just
1: seems like an interesting to go to all that effort and then to actually just leave before you 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 see the rewards. It just seems like such a such a sort of uh, you know kerfuffle really. It's just a, a bizarre situation.
0: But he was very much his own man, John Surtees. You know he walked out on Lotus when you know it all kicked off with Innes Island. You know because Colin Chapman wanted him before he wanted Jim Clark, um, and he got fed up and, and didn't want to get involved in that. He wanted to do things his own way. It's quite amazing actually that he lasted at Ferrari as long as. As long as he did. I think Enzo Ferrari probably respected someone who was as firm and sure of himself as Certes as was. And obviously there were points in his career where that was definitely a disadvantage. Um but uh, yeah, he, you know, given his driving ability, he should have won an awful lot more Grand Prix. But that's um, that's probably a different podcast.
1: <laughs> uh, I guess let's get a final word then on, on BRM. Where where do you think they sort of they rank in the sort of greats or maybe the teams that could have, like, should have done better, or, or where do you think they rank in the sort of F one
0: regard? I mean, that's a that's a very good question. I mean, they ultimately they spent more of their history being a failure than being a success. Um, you know, they it took them a long time to win a race. You know, in the late forties, there was all this hope into the you know, early nineteen fifties that they were going to be the ones to take on the Italian cars, um, and they were so bad and took so long at it. People like Tony Vandeveld went well, you know. I've had enough of this, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go and do it my way. And you know, Van will went and won Grand Prix in a World Championship before BRM took its first win. Um having said that, they're still um I was just looking it up, they're still the eleventh most successful team in terms of world championship race wins. Uh they did win a world championship. Uh, I think they were a good part of the F1 scene, particularly in the 1960s. So I think they're one of those sort of great, they're a great flawed team. Some fantastic cars, great moments, but also, I mean, they, they probably plumbed lower depths than almost any other world championship winning team. They really were very up and down. Uh, but I think that just makes their story a bit more interesting, really.
1: It's a bit sort of Shakespeare to it, isn't it? It's a bit of a, sort of a tragedy and success. And...
0: Yeah, absolutely. And also I got off soft spot for them because I do think that the BRM V16 is the greatest sounding engine <laughs> of all time. Uh, even though it's a complete and utter failure <laughs> as, a, as a racing engine it sounds amazing so yeah a little bit of a shout out for that
1: it is also still good to see those some of those cars still in action at, at things like goodwood uh, festival of speed just to see you know they're all, they've been preserved and and that you can still see them in action
0: yeah, and actually, um, Richard Atwood, he's raced, uh, I don't think he's driven it for quite a while now, but for a quite a long time at the Goodwood Revival, he would rock up with his P261, and you know, he was a front runner, he was a you know, race winner. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was a, yeah, they were a great, a great British name eventually, <laughs> and then disastrous again at the end.
2: With the Lucky Land slot, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Well, I guess we'll, uh, we'll, we'll move on to uh, British Touring Cars. bit of a change of scene, change of pace. But Marcus, you've been talking to Jake Hill, who really has come along a, a long way in, a few, in the last few years and is now a proper title contender. Just, just talk us through the sort of rise of Jake Hill.
2: One of the re- reasons for um, interviewing him for a, for a mid-season feature is he's not just a racing driver, he's just completely passionate about motorsport. Yeah, he's one of those drivers who Yeah, when when you're at a race, um there's obviously a lot of support races going on, and we're talking in this case about the Toka support package. And when you're uh when you you're in the paddock, when you're in a paddock that has a view of the racetrack, you can see which drivers have got enthusiasm for the for the racing, especially um brands hatch where the where the um pits back onto the uh, the Cooper straight so you can just watch through the fence and and Jake is one of the most enthusiastic followers of support races and uh, and yeah you, you see him out there at least for the early laps of races and, and he's just he's not just passionate about the good stuff but um, passionate about the bad stuff as well like, um, a few weeks ago at Brands uh, there was a Ginetta junior race and um safety car was called when the field were actually just coming through Graham Hill Bend on lap one. Um, but the, the safety car at, at Brands comes out in the access road from the, from the paddock and joins the track on Cooper Strait. So can, can you imagine if there's 25 Ginetta Juniors all in one big bunch going along Cooper Strait and suddenly there's a safety car to avoid? It's, it's not going to end well, is it? Sure enough, there was... Contact down the field, and um, I sort of caught Jake's eye, and he was just absolutely furious about the organisational procedure that had allowed this to happen. Um, just on behalf of uh, you know the lads and the teams who were racing, he he inherits that very much from his dad, his um, his dad Simon, who I first got to know in 1989 because we used to race against each other in um, in Formula First, and um, we. Uh, yeah, we got quite friendly in those days, and he was just massive. He was so determined and dedicated to make a career as a driver for himself. Um, and yeah, we had a couple of we had a couple of good battles on track. One one time, I remember, I thought I it might be a good idea to try and overtake him into Hall Benz at Cadwell Park, which is probably the most narrow and sinuous piece of track anywhere in the uk predictably it ended with me disappearing up a grass bank and, and out of the race but uh, but uh, yeah so and and um i i did that until at the end of 91 and then that was my second full season and but simon had, was sort of a year ahead of me and when in early 91 he went off to the states to try and um get a foothold on the ladder there, and he did um, he started the season in Barber Saab with um backing from uh, from a, a chap who had um, shipping interests in the middle east and then the, then the gulf War broke out <laughs> so so after one race, that was it And he was back but uh, then for a, for a decade after that, Simon was properly trying to make a career for himself and then i I remember. It was Autosport International one year in the early to mid two thousands, and Simon was there, and he had a little lad with him, and uh, he said, "Oh, this is my this is my son Jake. He's he started doing a bit of karting," uh, and I thought, "Oh, you're making me feel old, mate." <laughs> As with Simon, Jake has battled throughout his career without um yeah, without the funding to do things properly. Uh, his first. Full. Well, I was going to say his first full season in cars, but it couldn't be a full season because he didn't have the budget. But um, the Ginetta Junior season in 2009, and I was um, doing quite a bit of toker support coverage for autosport um, in those days. And um, that was the year Sarah Moore won the championship. And she, she just won it by uh, not only being quick, but being the one who stayed out of trouble in the races. And all these, you, you could see the the... the Huge levels of testosterone spikes from the uh, from the teenage lads who'd get into the lead and then throw it away. And, and Jake, if if you took if you took from a ten lap race, if you took a driver's five fastest laps, Jake would probably be about a second a lap quicker than anybody else. But but on the other five laps he'd be uh having all sorts of adventures. So so the speed was always there, but the um but he, he didn't do he didn't do the full season. Went through Juniors and uh, the GT four Super Cup, um had a bit of a rivalry with Tom Ingram actually. Um and uh Tom probably had um a bit better backing to to make his way as a into a career, but he um well not necessarily backing, but just support. It's funny, really, because nearly a decade on, they're now really back on a on a par in the in the British Touring Car Championship, and um, it is an it is an interesting interesting story because it really it really took off when he um, left Team Hard in the middle of 2018. Dark days for him as a driver, and then a little plan was hatched with Sean Hollenby, who was an old racing contemporary of Simon's. Um, to get him in with what became MB Motorsport last year.
1: Going back to the passion that he shows, you can just see it. You can just see it when you talk to him. He's just so uh, so passionate about his sport. But also, it's important to note that a lot of people probably think that these drivers earn money out of British touring cars, but they're not. They're not. Get, it's not like V8 supercars in Australia where they're on a big wage. Like they're just doing it because they love racing touring cars. They're not making any money out of this. Like this is this is all just for the pure love of the sport.
2: I honestly think there's not a driver on the grid who who doesn't love the sport. There are people who are who are on the grid solely because of their love of the sport, but there are quite a few drivers who are aspiring to earn a living out of the sport. Um and Jake is one of them obviously. Um Colin Turkington already does because he's a full-time champion and he's an absolute class act and and you know he earns he earns a salary for being a British Touring Car Championship driver. Um, Jake um, Jake Hill makes his living from driver coaching and from driving an increasingly impressive amount of historic racing cars and testing them, racing them. Tom Ingram he makes like Jason Plato he's he's trying to make his living from his commercial partners um that get him into the btcc in the first place so he doesn't necessarily get paid by a team to race but um but the commercial package he brings to the equation enables him to earn the living along with all the other little side side sidelines he's got so um but yeah so so jake what interested me about him was also we know his headline achievement this year is currently running fourth in the btcc with a motorbase slash mb motorsport ford focus and uh he's he's had a he's had a very good season he's done very well at events where he's carrying heavy success ballast um and they do seem to have a happy knack of being to out qualify the other, other heavily ballasted cars but on the weekends when he's not driving a Ford Focus and, and, and let's let's be honest here, we're not gonna say like like Kev did about the BRM V twelve, we're not gonna say the NGTC engine is the greatest sounding engine of all time, are we? When he's not racing that he's he's you know, this year he's been out in a Panos L M P one car, Chevron B twenty six, Ford Mustang, you know, proper proper old cars and, and um yeah, he's Collect Tamia radio controlled cars and mm. Races them when he when he's not driving the real thing. He's a massive scale electric fan and uh, just <laughs> uh, yeah, just, he's he's an anorak like we are, really, isn't he? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. He's, he's great fun to be around. And again, it, I actually was lucky enough to he he was on my patch when I started out as a news reporter for the Kent Messenger. So I used to cover Jake a lot, uh, and I first sort of came across him in 20, 2009, 2010. And I think 2010 was the year we finished runner-up to Ingram in the Genetta Juniors. And you could—he was always excellent in the wet, absolutely dynamite in the wet. But you could just tell like, when he, he was just striving every week. It was hand-to-mouth just to get a season done. And you have to admire people like that to to get where he's got. And he must feel at least proud to have risen that ladder and got to the point where he's he's now in a in a pretty safe, comfortable seat
2: at the moment in a, a motor base when you don't know that you're actually going to be able to do the next race it does show in the performance quite often you, you might be a bit ragged you might make mistakes Oh, I I only came back onto the British Touring Car Championship in um, at the beginning of 2020 um, after years covering single seats I covered the BTCC back in the 90s in the old Super Touring days so Jake was starting at the AMD slash MB Motorsport Honda team then and and really you can just see the the having the stability um around you having having the faith of of the people at the team and he's got an incredibly good engineer uh, incredibly good relationship with his engineer craig pawley who also works at the red bull f1 team in the suspension department
1: just to bring kev in on this obviously i know you're a bit of a btcc fan what have you made of of Jake's progress I know you've been probably watching from the sidelines.
0: Yeah, well I you know um yeah I've covered him and spoken to him you know, quite a few times over the years. I mean I tend to only bump into him now at historic events which I think suits us both quite nicely. Um but uh, yeah I mean he's he I think you yeah, the way you know Marcus has described it, yeah, you know, he's worked so hard to get there and he's now becoming a rounded Around an individual, you know, let's not let's be honest. The Ford Focus has been a difficult car to turn into a championship challenger. It's tended to be a car that you you have one really good weekend and then it's nowhere the next. So, to be up there consistently um, and to be fourth in the championship, yeah, I think is is a really, really good effort. Does it have the firepower to win the title? I think that might be a a bit of a stretch, but I think the fact that he's in there and up there fighting for it is, yeah, shows how far he's come. But I I just, um, one of the things I liked about um, Marcus's. Marcus's piece was um, obviously the historic's angle like I would said it's the one of the best looking British touring car features I've seen in the magazine for years because we've got a Panos a Mustang a Chevron a Nissan Skyline and we've got all this stuff and he just loves it and I think the historic's was quite important in kind of rekindling Jake's love of just driving really and I was um, I remember his, his Silverstone Classic uh, 2018 run in the Lotus of Land um, against all the big Cobras and E-types and things and he was obviously punching above his weight, but the reason he got into the lead was a it was a during a safety car period pitting at the right time that sort of thing well, it was quite amusing. so he he got out front he got through the other people who had done you know, similarly well timed pit stops so he was out front and you just know that all the cobras and e types are coming for him in the closing stages and going on to the last lap, he got caught by the by the first of the cobras who then tried a very got alongside on the run between cops and Becketts. And the, and the commentators are getting very excited. So there's no way in a million years that anyone in the Cobra is going to outbreak Jake Hill in a Lotus of Land when he gets to, when he gets to Maggots and becketts. And sure enough, he took absolutely yards out of the Cobra through that section, uh, long enough to then get down Hanger Straight and he held on to win the race. Uh, and he just just loved it. You know, it's such a release because he'd spent all that time, you know, tooling around at the back in uncompetitive machinery um, and just that enthusiasm came through again. So, yeah, he's a really good guy to have on the grid. Um, yeah, he's great to watch in historics. And, um, yeah, it's, it'd be nice if he... He hasn't got enough race wins under his belt for my liking in BTCC. So it'd be nice to see him get a, get a couple more this year, Marcus, if you could arrange that.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that's the that's the funny thing, isn't it? He's And one of the points he makes is that he may not actually win a race for the rest of the year. But as long as it brings you the championship... Um, then who cares? That, and that, to me, is a little bit of an indictment of the BTCC ballast rules, really. Um, in the, um, and we saw that in um, in the year Colin Turkinson won the championship with the one one C five. Was it twenty eighteen? Um, no, fourteen. The, he
0: dominated with the, the, the
2: second of the, and he he won it with he won it with one win from thirty races. Um, yeah. Jake Jake's only win to date in the BTCC was the reverse grid race at Knock Hill in 2019 with the Audi S3, um, but um, which is staggering when you think about it. And um, the, the it's he's only been on the podium this year at Thruxton, where he was on the podium in all three races, but he's still only 20 20 something points adrift of. Ash Sutton, who's leading the championship. I don't mind if the person who wins the championship wins 19 races in a season. But I can understand why Toka don't want that to happen. It's the rules we've got and you've, you've got to play by them. So, um, but I would, first of all, I would fully expect Jake to be winning a race in the Ford Focus. I would fully expect Ollie Jackson to be winning a race in the sister Ford Focus, actually, like he won a couple last year. I will certainly be happy when he wins a race that's not a reverse grid race um I a, pro- a proper be. win a <laughs> yeah. proper win that's
0: what we want also i want to see i want to see him racing the panels that's the other thing i want to see i want to see that um, out um, in a master's endurance race or something taking on yeah. big much more modern prototypes
2: yeah he's hoping for that to happen next year at some point but um I mean, one, one thing he did say which didn't make it into the future was that um every every year he he gets the BTCC calendar and then he matches it up against the historic calendar to to work out exactly what he can do, and if it clashes with if it clashes with a Goodwood or something like that, his heart sinks. That's
0: um, es- essentially what I did when I was covering the British Touring Car Championship <laughs> between 2011 and 14. <laughs> can I go to Goodwood this year?
1: Yes. <laughs> you made that point though about historics. That's an interesting point. Is that. There's a lot of drivers that should really follow that uh, system because certainly I was talking to Rory Butcher last year and he makes quite a bit of money out of historics just just like Jake is doing. It's actually a very important uh, step on the ladder for these guys. They actually do, like the historics, would you believe, is actually quite important for these drivers.
0: I, I bet there are more professional racing drivers in historic racing than there are in British touring cars at the moment, for example. And I don't mean that as a derogatory thing towards BTCC, you know, there are a lot winning the big historic meetings now. Whether it's Silverstone Classic, Goodwood, Monaco, Le Mans, you know, it's big. It, you know, it puts value on cars. You know, the rich owners really want to win, and um, they'll they're basically pay. They'll either pay pros to drive the cars and or pay pros to teach them how to drive them properly. Um, so there's a kind of coaching and go out there and stick it on pole kind of element, and you get to drive, you know, a whole load of different cool cars. You know, more seat time. Um, i don 't see what 's uh, what 's not to like really i I guess they 're probably not so depending on what you pick they perhaps aren 't as safe as a modern car but uh um obviously a lot of them are you know got proper roll cages and things in depends which ones you pick i suppose lucky land casino asking people what 's the weirdest place you 've gotten lucky
2: lucky in line at the deli I guess Haha in my dentist 's office.
1: ford puma uh, which will be launched uh, for the 2022 wrc season which which features a hybrid technology for the first time which is a big change for the for the championship and uh, for all the teams that now have to make new cars in quite a difficult economic climate which is uh, is another challenge but firm sport it's, it's a massively important car and uh, for them it's a real chance to get themselves back up where they belong uh, after a few seasons sort of in the doldrums but own sport and rallying are pretty, you know, synonymous, hand in
0: hand. Yeah, I mean, first of all, huge amount of respect for to Malcolm Wilson and his, his whole team. You know, if you think that they lost the Ford Works back in, back in, what was it, 2012? And so to have carried on, okay, I know they expanded into, you know, GT3 and what have you, but, you know, they've produced, carried on producing rally cars, carried up, carried on competing at the top of world rallying, um, you know, did win the world championship with Sebastian Auger. Um, I think that's yeah a phenomenal achievement in in modern motorsport, and um, yeah I know they've gone through a difficult time and they've had redundancies and things. Um, so I really hope that they do have a very good record with new cars, as you said in your in your piece, Tom. They you know that 2017 Fiesta, the new rules. I mean, I would say that having OJ behind the wheel is a pretty key element, which you'll get. I'm going to ask you a question about that in a minute. Um, But actually, if you go back to the very first Ford Focus that um, Colin McRae signed up to, to, you know, left Subaru for, that was a very good first car straight out of the box, that Focus. okay. I know they didn't quite win the championship, but they got very close. It was really circumstances and a bit of, sadly, a bit of McCrashing that uh, stop that from from happening in the end, but yeah, a fantastic team. It would be great to see them back up again. It's it's been a shame to see it kind of them drop behind the sort of Hyundai Toyota battle. But well, I've got two questions to throw back to you, Tom, if I may. The first one is, it was difficult to get a read for just how much Ford support there is. So my first question is, do you think that Ford can be tempted to do any more, or they just they've helped out with the hybrid and development, and 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 that's it? You you carry on now.
1: It's it's interesting. That's an interesting question. I mean, certainly I was at Goodwood for the for the launch of that Puma, and the Ford CEO Jim Farley was there, and Ford Performance head Mark Rushbrook was there. So they are the two biggest players you can have uh, from the Blue Oval, and so that was a that was a significant sign that this is important to Ford. Um, also puts a lot of pressure on Home Sport. But certainly when I asked the questions to Rushbrook. And the team about you know can we see a will the, will this be a full Ford uh, you know manufacturer backed effort in the future and it was all very quiet it all goes very quiet uh, and M-Sports certainly say we have a deal in place this is what we're going to get we're not it's not going to get any bigger than than what we have now this is this is the situation this is how it is we're not going to be able to compete quite to the same level as Toyota and Hyundai which is interesting but certainly when Rushbrook when I asked Rushbrook he said I can't comment on that. So maybe he's trying to play it cool, maybe they might do something, but I think what this hinges on um, is an event in America. Now, WRC are pushing pretty hard for this, and Ford are the key people behind this push. So um, if that comes off, who knows, maybe we could see Ford back in a proper, proper way, because... They are very excited about this, and they're not, they're not in it to, to be runners-up. They're in it to win. And when they put their resources together, as we saw, certainly I saw in Australia with the Mustang and 8 supercars, they absolutely dominated with that Ford Performance-designed Mustang. They don't, they don't mess about when they get their big guys on it. So it's going to be interesting. But certainly, to answer your question at this point, I don't think we're going to see a full Ford effort, certainly for the next couple of years.
0: Well, my second question then, which becomes even more crucial, is drive a line up. So, the reason that, one of the reasons that M Sport were able to win the championship in 2017 is because Malcolm pulled an absolute blinder and managed to get hold of Ogier, who, on his magical mystery tour of let's win the championship with every car that possibly has ever seen a rally stage during his career, Um, apart from a Citroën, rather ironically. yeah he he obviously made the difference for them um and that's not a criticism of their current driver lineup but have they got anyone uh i know that you said in your piece that all the big names have kind of been taken uh but is there anyone that could perhaps fill that void for them over the next couple of years
1: it's it's an interesting one and and, and if you, you know sort of look on paper if you examine the whole Puma project the car Certainly the noises that the team are making, they're very excited about how good this car is going to be. So I don't think there's going to be any qualms over how good the car is, but you're absolutely right. Without a solid driver line, you can have a great car and not not deliver. So um, there'll be a lot of pressure on them, certainly with Ford putting the backing in as they have to actually deliver this, but it's going to be tricky. And I think it all really rests on how well Adrian Formo goes, because this is what they're kind of pinning all their hopes on, at this moment, he's the only one who's really locked in, uh, although not totally locked in, but it, he will be there next year. And some, some guys, we're pretty confident we can say that. Um, but he is the next real hope and the next hope of French rallying. The fact that this kid has, has only sat in a rally car for the first time four years ago and he's already in the top flight WRC. He's got his first stage win this season in a car, let's be honest, that isn't the most competitive um, I think there's a lot of potential in him, but can he deliver next year is going to be a big ask. And I think they'll need someone experienced. And the only really sort of experienced head that they can try and get is Craig Breen, who is available and they have been talking to. So it will be interesting to see if they can snare someone like Breen or maybe Essa Pekalapi, if he can come back. They're the only really two experienced names left that they can try and sort of build this around but I do I, I agree with you I think they need an experienced head I think Formos got the talent but is he is he quite ready yet I'm not sure
0: He's also got the wrong first name hasn't he because he's you know, a young up and coming French ray driver surely he should be called yeah. Sebastian what's that about
1: <laughs> ridiculous well, it isn't, yeah. his parents obviously yeah. weren't paying yeah. attention yeah no he's a good kid he's really good I uh, really got a lot of time from actually wrote a piece on the website this uh, last week about him um, really likes Attitude Sebastian Loeb uh, has said that he's a real talent for the future. Uh, so if you've got that sort of backing from Loeb, um, this guy's going to be good. It's just whether he can be good from 2022 onwards, that, uh, you know, from straight away, he, I think it might take another year before we see just how good he will be. But he is only 26, and that's quite young these days for, for some of the rally drivers, although I know we've got Rovan Perra and, and Ollie Solberg in there. But at the moment, the current crop, he's one of the youngest.
2: Tom, you, you mentioned that he's 26 and that he only sat in a rally car for the first time four years ago. But did, did he have a background in circuit racing or karting or anything? Like no, he, was, he just he came to the sport
1: quite late. Just uh, the first real event he did was a 2016 talent spotting rally contest. And he won it in France, which um, and ever since then, he sort of picked it up. It's, he was very late to the sport and, and just had a quite meteoric rise. So it's an interesting one, Adrian's story. It's quite, quite, uh, it's sort of unsure why he was so late to it, whether it was funding struggles or something like that. But yeah, an interesting late developer.
2: Yeah, that's, that's interesting and very impressive. Um, now the reason I ask is because there are a couple of drivers on the French scene at the moment where I, I recognise their name and think, oh, he was in Formula 3 a few years ago or <laughs> Formula Renault, obviously changed tack. Um, too expensive to make it in single seaters
1: let's let's try rallying yeah as i said i think i think it's an exciting time for wrc next year with you know three brand new cars new technology um it looks like the the level playing field for 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 once uh we could we could see so it could really be anyone's and with without ogier doing a full season it really could be anyone's
0: I was just going to say that creates that creates a vacuum, doesn't it? Because if you level the playing field, all you do is give OJ another title. So the fact that he's, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, 'cause because Tanak will be quick but won't string a championship together. Neuville will find a way to disappear into a tree somewhere or whatever, and OJ will just keep banking the points. So once he's gone, it'll be interesting to say who feel, see who fills the void. I mean, you think Tanak probably will be, depending on how quickly Raven Perra can become a, you know, a fully rounded driver.
1: Absolutely. I think, I think Rovenpera is probably the, the next big thing in terms of getting that win un, under his belt now in Estonia. I think we'll really see a different Raven-Pera. Uh And next year, he may just have to step up a notch because OJ not being there, he might have to really take it on, him, on, on, on himself. Obviously, we had have Elfin there. We shouldn't forget Elfin. But, uh, but I think in terms of star quality, uh, Rovenpera is probably the one that could be the next dominant force. Of course, with M Sport, they have BTCC connections now, as they are now building the stock engine for BTCC from next year. Um, just, just talk us a bit about your sort of thoughts on on how M Sport are going with that project, uh, Marcus.
2: Yeah, well, it seems to be um, seems to be progressing quite well. Um, obviously, massively in conjunction with Cosworth, who are um, doing the electronics for the hybrid system. So, so that's going to be a completely new angle to bring into the BTCC next year. Well, I say next year, but um, late September if you're at Silverstone BTCC, you'll see it uh, this year (laughs) Um, because um, the Speedworks run Toyota Corolla um, in which Andrew Jordan has been doing most of the test and development work is going to be um, entered into the races at Silverstone, barring disaster. Um, And the the intention is to it's it's more like a demonstration as um as Alan Gow the series BTCC series boss put it so he will take part in free practice he'll take part in qualifying and according to Alan Gow will probably qualify on pole because the the engine with the hybrid will be more powerful than, than anything else out there um but <clears throat> he won't start from pole pole will uh, go to whoever uh, is second fastest in qualifying if indeed the hybrid is quickest um and uh andrew jordan will start each race from the pit lane not try not to get involved in um, any incidents although around the 1.6 mile silverstone national circuit with <laughs> 29 other cars i don't really see how you can avoid it for a whole race um but we thought what happened last year, didn't we? <laughs> maybe if he goes off yeah, on the Grand Prix circuit there. and laps
0: there instead.
2: <laughs> That's not a bad idea, actually. Yeah.
0: I have one uh, question or maybe request for Marcus, actually. So if I think I'm right in saying that the hybrid is going to be used to sort of a push-to-pass type scenario next year. So we're going to have push-to-pass, success ballast, reverse grids and tyre... <laughs> Different tyre choice. Can we remove one of those, please? Can I suggest having one tyre across a weekend? Uh, will they do anything yeah. like that, or will Gal continue to have lots of lots of knobs that he can twiddle?
2: <laughs> yeah, just to to be honest, I think it should just be a lucky dip, really. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> what for the grid? Don't bother with qualifying. Yeah. Get the
0: get the whole grid set by uh, balls yeah. out of a
2: hat. Massive we're, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're, uh, we're, uh, As you say, there are so many variables. And as, uh, as our esteemed colleague Gary Watkins would say, it's like mixing your sweets with your savouries.
1: <laughs> well, thank you again, guys. That's our podcast for today. But before we go, here's what you can see right now on Autosport Plus. In MotoGP, Oriol Poudremont outlines the dilemma facing Petronas SRT with its rider lineup for 2022. James Newbold investigates why GTE AM is the most unpredictable class at the Le Mans 24 Hours, and you can also read about French WRC rising star Adrian Formo and how he looks to carry on the legacy created by Sebastian Loeb and Sébastien Auger. We think it's the best motorsport writing out there, but judge for yourself with half price access. New subscribers who sign up today can use the promo code PODCAST all in capitals during checkout to save fifty percent off their first payment. Go to autosport.com slash plus and click sign in at the top of the page then use promo code podcast for the 50% discount. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back soon.